Welcome, Alternative News listeners, and thank you for soul vaccination for getting my soul right. This is your community radio station, 91.7, and this is a pre-recorded broadcast on Saturday, May the 2nd, to be broadcast on Monday, May the 4th. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, with your host, Pedro Gatos. This is our third post-COVID virus show, A New World, but the same place. And as we do before we go to all of our show content each week, we first go to war. Okay, wanted to start the show with some empirical observations towards better understanding what really shapes our understanding of the world we find ourselves in each day. Uh, It is not the invisible hand of the marketplace. Rather, it is the invisible hand of the 
ridiculous wealth concentration and wealth inequality of the 1%, if you will, that controls this marketplace. The wealthiest 1% interests, if you will, that have long ago hijacked our destiny to their great financial and personal advantage and at the direct cost of the vast majority of U.S. citizens. So the influence over the ideas, the way we think of the majority through the disproportional wealth that the few monopolize is both a prerequisite as well as a requirement for maintaining a profoundly unfair system in such a way that those that are getting exploited are nearly blinded from seeing the reality of their subordinate second-class position. This has been observed historically. Over 150 years ago, it was written that the ideas of the ruling class are in every epic, the ruling ideas. In other words, the class, which is the ruling material force, owns the material drivers of the culture we live in. At the same time, it's the ruling intellectual force. It's the class which has the means of material production at its disposal, has control of, you know, at the same time, over the means of mental production, of thinking, of ideas, so that thereby, generally speaking, the ideas of those who lack these means of mental production are subject to it. The ruling ideas are nothing more than the ideal expression of this dominant material relationship, the dominant material relationship grasped as ideas. In other words, the wealthy don't just own material things, they own you. They also have public relations, capacities, uh, these type of advertising techniques, if you will, that inundate us with floods of information, leaving out critical information that may contradict it, their narratives that shape, without us even knowing it, our way of thinking in a way that we can't see critically as we must in order to see that, that we may be, be taken for a ride. So this show is going to be geared towards all of the political arguments that we see on TV or, or in, in our newspapers are kind of predicated on this kind of concept. So, for instance, when you look at the current conflict between the United States administration and the World Health Organization, you can see some of this. And we'll also be talking about why is it that it's not just under Republican, but also under Democratic presidents, that the majority population's welfare has been so demised. And now this COVID virus, if you will, has kind of uncovered this reality. It has uncovered the shortcomings caused by this uh, economic social system that is based on and driven by this gross inequality of wealth. And all of these things will be documented in the show and have been documented in, in previous shows. So we'll turn our first attention to the World Health Organization and its Director General's comments and the uh, critique of it by the Trump administration. The World Health Organization is a specialized agency of the United Nations responsible for international public health. They are leading the world address to the COVID-19 pandemic. This past week in particular, there's been an increased heated rhetoric from the Trump administration demonizing the World Health Organization. We have withdrawn our funding on a temporary 30 to 90 day basis. And this segment is specific to some of the work that they are doing. And much of it comes from remarks made at press conferences by its head, the Director General of the World Health Organization, Tedros Adhanom. Gibriasis. Anyhow, he is the World Health Organization 
Director General in his opening remarks at the media briefing on COVID-19 back on the 27th of April, just one Monday ago, we'll start off this segment. I just wanted to highlight that he will be referring to a term called GAVI that you should be familiar with. He will also be talking about World Immunization Week and Malaria Day, which happened to be just a week ago last Saturday. It's worth noting that the Director General, Tedros Adnam Ghebreyesus, is an Ethiopian microbiologist and internationally recognized malaria researcher who has served since 2017 as the Director General of the World Health Organization. He is the first non-physician and first African in the role and the first to be endorsed by the African Union. Specifically, with respect to Gavi, this is the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization. It's an alliance. It draws on the strengths of its core partners, which is the World Health Organization, UNICEF, the World Bank, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Gavi also works with donors, including sovereign donor governments, private sector foundations, and corporate partners. Additionally, with civil society organizations, including NGOs, advocacy groups, professional and community associations, faith-based organizations, and academia. It includes vaccine manufacturers, and also developing country governments that receive these services, also funding from them that are implementing these vaccination programs. So as part of the mission to address the need for vaccines, Gavi has helped vaccinate more than 760 million children in the world's poorest countries, preventing more than 13 million deaths. Uh, Gavi now vaccinates almost half of the world's children, giving it tremendous power to negotiate vaccines at prices that are affordable for the poorest countries and to remove the commercial risks that previously kept manufacturers from serving them. As a result, these prices have come down consistently, the vaccine costs, that is, for these developing countries. Gavi was created in 2000, and it was an idea that this Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, the Vaccine Alliance, these market-shaping of efforts, the cost of fully immunizing a child with all 11 World Health Organization-recommended childhood vaccines now cost $28 per child in Gavi-supported countries, compared to about $1,100 U.S. outside of that parameter. At the same time, the pool of manufacturers producing pre-qualified Gavi-supported vaccines has grown from five in 2001, with one of those in Africa, to now 17 in 2017 with 11 in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. You can look up Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunations, Gavi, to get more information on that. That being said, I wanted to just go ahead and play these opening remarks. These are the Director General's opening remarks of the, of the World Health Organization, opening remarks at the media briefing on COVID-19 just a week ago, April 27th. We will continue as WHO to invest in multilingualism because our beauty is our diversity. WHO remains committed to providing access to as much information as possible in as many languages as possible and reach every corner of our world. I have said since the beginning that the most important resource in the fight against COVID-19 is solidarity. Solidarity, solidarity, Solidarity. The launch of the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator on Friday was a powerful demonstration 
of that solidarity. WHO is deeply grateful to the many world leaders and partners who have come together to ensure no one misses out on life-saving vaccines, diagnostics, or therapeutics. We look forward to more countries and stakeholders supporting this global collaboration, this global movement. This initiative is a vital investment in the response, both for the short term and the long term. Diagnostics are helping us now to find cases and ensure people are isolated and get the right care. And we're hopeful that the solidarity trial will shortly help us to understand which therapeutics are the most safe and effective for treating patients. But ultimately, we will need a vaccine to control this virus. The success in developing effective drugs and vaccines for Ebola reminds us of the enormous value of these tools and the enormous power of nationals and international collaboration to develop them. WHO played a key role in the development of the Ebola vaccine, and we're doing the same for COVID-19. Developing a COVID-19 vaccine has been accelerated because of previous work WHO and partners have done over several years on vaccines for other coronaviruses, including SARS and MERS. Also, COVID-19 is taking a heavy toll. WHO is deeply concerned about the impact the pandemic will have on other health services, especially for children. Children may be at relatively low risk from severe disease and death from COVID-19, but can be at high risk from other diseases that can be prevented with vaccines. This week is World Immunization Week. Immunization is one of the greatest success stories in the history of global health. More than 20 diseases can be prevented with vaccines. Every year, more than 116 million infants are vaccinated, or 86% of all children born globally. But there are still more than 13 million children around the world who miss out on vaccination. We know that the number will increase because of COVID-19. Already, polyvaccination campaigns have been put on hold, and in some countries, routine immunization services are being scaled back or shut down. With the start of the Southern Hemisphere flu season, it's vital that everyone gets their seasonal flu vaccine. Even when services are operating, some parents and caregivers are avoiding taking their children to be vaccinated because of concerns about COVID-19. And myths and information about vaccines are adding fuel to the fire, putting vulnerable people at risk. When vaccination coverage goes down, more outbreaks will occur, including of life-threatening diseases like measles and polio. Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, has estimated that at least 21 low- and middle-income countries are already reporting vaccine shortages as a result of border closures and disruptions to travel. So far, 14 vaccination campaigns supported by the Gavi against polio, measles, cholera, human papillomavirus, yellow fever, and meningitis have been postponed, which would have immunized more than 13 million people. The tragic reality is that children will die as a result. Since 2000, Gavi and partners, including WHO, have helped vaccinate more than 760 million children 
in the world's poorest countries, preventing more than 13 million deaths. Gavi has set an ambitious goal to immunize 300 million more children with 18 vaccines by 2025. To reach this goal, Gavi will require 7.4 billion US dollars in its upcoming replenishment. We call on the global community to ensure Gavi is fully funded for this life-saving work. This is not a cost. It's an investment that pays a rich dividend in lives saved, especially in our children. Just as immunization has been disrupted in some countries, so have services for many other diseases that afflict the poorest and most vulnerable people, including malaria. As you know, Saturday was World Malaria Day, and a new modeling analysis published last week estimates the potential disruption to malaria services from COVID-19 in 41 countries in sub-Saharan Africa. In the worst case scenario, the number of malaria deaths in sub-Saharan Africa could double, but that doesn't have to happen. And we're working with countries and partners to support them, put measures in place to ensure that services for malaria continue even as COVID-19 spreads. As lockdowns in Europe is with declining numbers of new cases, we continue to urge countries to find, isolate, test, and treat all cases and trace every contact to ensure these declining trends continue. But the pandemic is far from over. I repeat, the pandemic is far from over. WHO continues to be concerned about the increasing trends in Africa, Eastern Europe, Latin America, and some Asian countries. As in all regions, cases and deaths are underreported in many countries in these regions because of low testing capacity. We're continuing to support these countries with technical assistance through our regional and country offices and with supplies through solidarity flights. In the past week, we have delivered supplies to more than 40 countries in Africa and more are planned. Globally, WHO has shipped millions of items of personal protective equipment to 105 countries and lab supplies to more than 127 countries. And we will ship many millions more in the weeks ahead. And we're preparing aggressively. Later this week, WHO will launch its second strategic preparedness and response plan with an estimate of the resources needed for the next stage of the global response. I would like to thank the People's Republic of China, Portugal, and Vietnam for their recent contributions to WHO strategic preparedness and response plan. We're also grateful to the more than 280,000 individuals, corporations, and foundations who have contributed to the Solidarity Response Fund, which has now generated more than 200 million US dollars. And I thank FluLab especially for its contribution of 10 million US dollars. We have a long road ahead of us and a lot of work to do. WHO is committed to doing everything we can to support all countries. But political leadership is also essential, including the vital role of parliaments. As a former parliamentarian, I fully recognize the big role that parliamentarians can, can play. Tomorrow, I'll be participating in a webinar for parliamentarians hosted by WHO, the Interparliamentary Union, 
and the United Nations Office for Disaster Risk Reduction to discuss the role parliaments can play to reduce risks, strengthen emergency preparedness, and increase resilience. I continue to call for the world to come together in solidarity and national unity to confront this pandemic, but also to prevent the next one and to build a healthier, safer, fairer world for everyone, everywhere. But I repeat, national unity is the foundation for global solidarity. Solidarity, solidarity, solidarity. That's what we will say every single day. This virus will not be defeated if we are not united. If we are not united, the virus will exploit the cracks between us and continue to create havoc. Lives will be lost and even every single life is very precious. We can only defeat this virus through unity at the national level and through solidarity, genuine solidarity at the global level. I thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Terios, for these opening remarks. Uh, we are joined also by Dr. Sonia Swaminathan, WHO Chief Scientist. So in summary, the Director General on May 27th, in his opening remarks, highlights the following main issues. He starts by beginning his opening remarks with the World Health Organization's commitment to invest in multilingualism because our beauty is our diversity. Our beauty is our diversity. And as you listen to these regular updates throughout the week by the World Health Organization, you can see more and more languages are having access to the immediate broadcast of the content of these panels that he's heading. Secondly, the most important resource, he says, in the fight against COVID-19 is solidarity. He says solidarity, solidarity, solidarity. He talks about this COVID-19 tools accelerator. Uh, basically, it's promoting the life-saving vaccines, diagnostics, and therapeutics the World Health Organization and the world are, are needing to accelerate. He mentions the World Health Organization's past work that has been done along with his partners, and it's been being done for the last several years on vaccines for other coronaviruses, including SARS and, and MERS. He also mentions this week is the week of immunization, which of course was last week, since this is a speech from a week ago Monday. He also talks about how immunization is one of the greatest success stories in the history of global health. He says that there's more than 20 diseases that now can be prevented with vaccines. Every year, more than 116 million infants are vaccinated. 86% of all children born are vaccinated, but still there's 13 million children that uh, miss out on vaccinations globally. He also indicates that the effects of COVID-19 pandemic has been to increase the number of children who will miss out on vaccinations. Already, he talks about polio vaccination campaign that's been put on hold. Uh, Saturday, April 25th, was World Malaria Day, he mentions. And with the result of COVID, it's possible that malaria deaths can as much as double in sub-Sahara Africa. And then his ending theme really was the need for political leadership. And I thought that was striking because of obviously here in the middle of a pandemic, we're attacking World Health Organization. We are withdrawing funding immediately from the World Health Organization in the pandemic. So instead of solidarity, 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 it's it's more, you know, me, 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 perhaps. But he says we need political leadership. He calls for the world to come together in solidarity and national unity to confront this pandemic. The national unity is the foundation for global solidarity. 
If we are not united, the virus will exploit the gaps between us, national disunity, if you will, and create havoc and lost lives. We can only defeat this virus through unity at the national level and solidarity at the global level, he reiterates with his last words. So as the director general clamors for national unity and global unity, basically, we need all hands on deck. However, I would be remiss by not including some potential pitfalls and cautions that Tony Cartolucci in his article of May 1st, 2020, just a couple of days ago, called Big Pharma Put in Charge of COVID-19 Vaccine, where he warns that pharma companies in the past have had relationships with the World Health Organization that were shown to be not above board and corrupt. So as we fast forward to this COVID-19 pandemic today, we are told and we are becoming inclined to invest our trust and faith into pharma corporations with extensive records of pursuing government-funded vaccines and therapies for COVID-19 that have been guilty and repeatedly convicted in courts of law around the globe of crimes, including falsifying research, safety and efficacy studies, bribing researchers, doctors, regulators, and even law enforcement officials, and marketing drugs that were either entirely ineffective or even uh, dangerous. This is from the Cartolucci article, and information that I've independently verified for many years. He indicates that there are instances of World Health Organization and some of these public health official, quote unquote, experts who were in the pay of big pharma. These experts were and used their positions to declare the appearance of H1N1 as a pandemic, justifying likewise paid off governments to stockpile big pharma medication for patients that never ended up needing them. The BBC in their article, World Health Organization swine flu experts linked with drug companies would admit, quote, key scientists behind World Health Organization advice on stockpiling of pandemic flu drugs had financial ties with companies which stood to profit an investigation has found. The British Medical Journal says the scientists had openly declared these interests in other publications, yet the World Health Organization made no mention of the links. So I don't suggest that the World Health Organization is not without committed public servants and has not often sought counsel from brilliant scientists, you know, divorced from financial personal gain for their work. But it's also not what Trump and Pompeo are criticizing and cutting off USA to the World Health Organization for. So an important point I should say to make, to step back here, and that is these large international bodies that have the appearance of neutrality and being apolitical can be and have been complicit with corrupting influences of this 1% material interest we were talking about at the beginning of the show we were alluding to. In addition to Cartolucci's evidence of World Health Organization unethical practices on behalf of pharma, the OPCW and the IAEA, both supposedly independent apolitical entities, have been victimized by the long reach of those that have the purse strings. So that's an important consideration. And that's why we continue to pursue our mantra always to trust, but verify first. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday news and analysis with your host, Pedro Gatos, on the premier community radio station of the nation, 91.7 KOOP. That's KOOP.org. We're going to take a break, and when we're back, we'll be back with the second half of the show.